Have you been zombified by stress? Welcome to the Zombified Podcast, your source for fresh brains. I'm your host, Athena Actipus. I'm a professor at ASU in the psychology department. I'm also the chair of the Zombie Apocalypse Medicine Alliance. And? And I am Dave. I am the media outreach program manager for the psych department at ASU. And a big brain fan, as always. Yes, we love brains on this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Brains. And and today we have a really, a really great brain. Uh, So Mark Flynn, I was not able to sit in on this podcast, but I've met him before. And he's a brilliant guy. And so why don't you tell me about what he's going to be telling us about? All right. Well, Mark talks about something totally crazy, which is this idea that witchcraft and voodoo and all of this sort of stuff that people think of as like metaphysical nonsense, that actually it has a real basis in manipulation of our stress system. And that like when people feel like there's witchcraft happening against them or they're like, they think they're practicing witchcraft, like what they're actually doing is messing with people's stress systems. So essentially he's saying witchcraft is real? Well, Except it's not what people think it is. It's not like a metaphysical thing. It is a real thing that is based in our physiological responses to largely social stress. Interesting. Yeah. um, And I see you say here that he admits to being a witch himself. Yeah, a good one though. Okay. All right. Well, this is, I think this is going to be really interesting. I I can't wait to listen to it. Yeah. All right. Well, let's um, jump right in with Mark Flynn. All right. I know it's crazy, but it seems so logical. Try to fight it, but it's something psychological with you. Makes me act the way I do. I'm not trying to be over analytical. Retracing time to remind myself how. Stress is is very important. So there was a real paradox. Uh, it seemed as if responding to purely psychological stressors in your social environment was a mistake because there's no physical demand. And so why mobilize your physiology for what appeared to, to be set up for a... Uh, physical demand. But so this is the sort of Robert Sapolsky argument, right, the zebras right, right. don't get ulcers, kind of, it's a mismatch, humans are getting stressed when we shouldn't. Right. But it, it is so pervasive and so uh, intricately uh, designed in terms of how, it resp- how we respond to our social environments, on the one hand, that it doesn't look like a mistake. It, and then... Uh, secondly, given the extraordinary importance of social relationships um, for humans, and um, yeah, I think arguably the, the the best explanation for why we have such exceptionally large brains with really unusual abilities in terms of empathy and language, social foresight, um, those kinds of abilities. Well, brains are one of our favorite topics on this show, you can imagine. They are delicious. <laughs> so so the human brain is kind of, you're saying it's designed to 
deal with these social stressors just as much as it's designed to deal with any physical stressor. Oh, if anything, way more so, orders of magnitude more so. So if you look at what your brain is actually up to, um, you know, there are some routine functions that a lizard is able to do, and we can do that just fine too. But what's really extraordinary and exceptional about our gigantic brains is all the, the complicated social sorts of computations, the social chess game, um, that it is playing out uh, consciousness scenarios uh, that involve social relationships, social interactions. And our very long childhoods um, seem uh, to be wrapped up in, a, in learning, mastering um, those kinds of very difficult um, uh, things to, to do in your social world. Mm. So, yeah, it takes a very long time, a lot of experience, um, mm. friendships, networks. So it's not just that our brains automatically wire up the right way to be able to deal oh, with all this stress, no. that we actually need a lot of input from the environment to yeah. calibrate that. And the reason for that, the reason why we're so creative is because the social world is so dynamic. So you're always looking for a better mousetrap, but everybody else is. So you can't stick, you can't set a brain up in a, a set way. It's got to be very dynamic and adjustable. It's constantly fine tuning itself, constantly looking for new solutions to solve the social chess game. So, um, yeah, that requires an, a very flexible, adjustable um, hmm. system involving lots and lots of learning. Then it must be open-ended in a way that can sometimes lead to vulnerabilities too, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I yes. mean, that's and yeah, what we would consider to be pathologies because there's so many different open ways you could, hmm. you know, go. And, hmm. and particularly if you don't have a social network that gives you landmarks that help you ground yourself that, that, you know, really sets bearings for you, individuals who you can trust. So, you know, they will give you honest feedback about you and where you are and whether what you're doing is appropriate for your position in, in your social network. Mm. So basically <clears throat> you're saying we humans were kind of trying to figure out how to make it in our social world. And that starts in childhood. And we need to be getting feedback from people who we trust and who think have our best interests at heart kind of in order to calibrate our systems, right? So that we grow up emotionally and mentally It healthy. starts even earlier. It starts in utero. So a fetus is getting feedback from its mother. They have this beautiful chemical language going back and forth across the placenta where the fetus is monitoring what's going on in its mother's life based on you know, her hormone levels and, and other inputs. Um, so it, from a very, very early age, is beginning to, to build a model of the social world that's specific to itself and its mother. And so how is it doing that? Because obviously, you know, it's not necessarily encoding it in its neural circuitry at that point because its neural circuitry isn't even established immediately right no but it's establishing uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. or, or is it in like the epigenetics do we know how the the fetal environment is uh affecting those developmental trajectories yeah. is it i'd say this is kind of state of the art so uh -huh. you know it's a bit black boxy in that 
um, we can look at different maternal environments mm-hmm. and then look at outcomes. Mm-hmm. And so there seem to be some important patterns there. Um, very interesting work done um, with mice that is epigenetic, um, where if your mother was under stress, that then will be passed on um, to the grand offspring in a complex way because mm-hmm. of how the how you adjusted uh, in utero to your um, your mom's stressful environment. Does that have to do with the HPA axis, the hypothalamic yes. adrenal pituitary? Is that right? Yeah, that's good, yeah, good enough. That yeah. So. <laughs> no, what is that? What's, what's HP? <laughs> pituitary adrenal. <laughs> well, it's you know it's yeah hypothalamic yeah. Uh, anterior pituitary um, adrenal. Okay. So yeah, there's a complex circuitry where your your senses perceive a, a threat. Uh, that then releases a cascade um, starting usually up through the limbic system and, and then down um, through um, the, the hypothalamus and the pituitary, which releases a hormone, corticotropin releasing hormone into the bloodstream, which goes to the adrenals, which causes the release of cortisol. Mm-hmm. But there are a lot of modifiers. So, you know, one myth, a couple myths here that we ought to um, deal with, one of which is that um, we can understand uh, these hormonal systems uh, um, in isolation. So, you know, we can just look at cortisol. Mm. But cortisol interacts with the whole suite of other hormones and neurological situations. Mm -hmm. So you have to look at it as a whole big picture, like a complex system. Exactly. So there's a recipe. And so a lot of research, I think, has uh, maybe um, not been as productive as it could have been because it looked at one hormone in isolation Mm -hmm. rather than the broader context. I see. The other problem was... um, you know, experimental work can be, um, you know, a very powerful scientific tool. But particularly when you're dealing with evolved systems, it's also very helpful to look at them in the context in which they have, uh, that they're designed to, to deal with, i.e. a child's everyday world, the, the natural environment. It's just hard to do. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, to, to watch children to see what's going on in their lives and monitor hormone levels and other physiological mechanisms. How are you going to do that? Well, um, we really lucked out about uh, 30 years ago in that uh, new techniques for measuring hormones uh, could be adapted to uh, use non-invasive techniques. Um, I collect saliva. Sometimes we collect urine too, but, Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's no big deal. Ask right. a child to, you know, spit in a cup. Psh, I mean, they're spitting it. anyway, right? So yeah, it's like... <laughs> yeah, more or less. Yeah, I, mean, I think it can get, can get a little bit onerous when, you know, I'm asking them to spit in a cup six times a day. But, uh-huh. you know, they... Are... They, they get to practice their spitting skills, which I'm sure they find uses for. <laughs> their drooling skills. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, they get they get rewarded in their own ways. Um, it's, it's... So, yeah, my research in, in Dominica... Uh, basically involve watching children in their everyday natural environments. And family environments are a super important part of that. So, you know, one of the one of the things we picked up 
upon pretty quickly was just how important uh, a child's family environment was. So when we're watching the hormones go up and down and what kinds of things are going up and down in response to, their social environments are exceptionally salient. And in that context, they're, they're family environments. So um, mom and dad, grandparents, siblings um, at all can have a, a very uh, significant influence on what's going on in a, a child's physiology. Mm. So in general, we humans can influence each other's physiologies. Mm-hmm. And that's where we kind of get into the voodoo and the witchcraft and what the mechanisms actually are that right. underlie so that. So if, if I've been clever and have figured out and, and build upon generations and generations before me of developing little ways of influencing the minds of others, and theoretically that's what we humans have really been up to, Mm. Um, you know, uh, manipulating one another in ways that are in our best interests, uh, for sure. Uh, you know, pulling the, the strings on your stress system, uh, could be a way that I could influence you. Okay. Um, so can you give some examples of in Dominica, what kinds of witchcraft or, um, more generally, these sort of practices where individuals are influencing each other, what kinds of things happen in at your field site? Um, let me start with saying that, yeah, this is really a universal human phenomenon. So any culture you might go into, you will see variants of uh, ways in which individuals influence one another's physiological system. So evil eye or... Uh, gosh, you know, I mean, there's just, some of them are what we would call culture bound syndromes. So they're more. And what does that mean? A culture bound syndrome? Yeah. Well, you know, it's a little tricky to define, but basically the, the gist of the idea is, um, each culture society might have its own specific, uh, kinds of psychological problems. So. You know, depression in China might be different than depression in Dominica or the United States. And sometimes we give uh, specific labels to those differences. Mm. Um, so in, in Dominica, um, you might feel that you, someone has put a curse on you. And that's going to raise your anxiety levels. Something. How, how would you learn that someone put a curse on you? Is it something that sort of is gossiped about or someone will tell you that they've put oh, a curse it, on it you? It could be, but, you know, you uh -huh. just situate yourself. Think about yourself and your social world. You've got uh -huh. friends and you've got enemies. Your, uh -huh. your brain is constantly monitoring, you know, what you, you think people are, are doing to you. You know, not to be paranoid, mm -hmm. but, you know, yeah, I mean, yeah. we're all doing that. Uh -huh. And... Um, uh, so you might, you know, have normally existing concerns of, about it. And mm, if like you, feeling like people might be talking behind your back about you, that sure, kind of thing. Or that, you know, someone's competing for a position at work that you might want. And so they are kind of working mm. behind the scenes to, to, to derogate you. Mm. Or, you know, you could be competing over uh, a potential romantic partner. 
with someone. Um, that's that's a common source of. Hmm. So is is witchcraft and voodoo is kind of an extension of this competitive, deceptive strategy that just manifests in you know, a lot of these small scale societies as sort of a belief in the supernatural. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. So, and as you might expect, there are all these different cultural variants, just historical antecedents that are going to result in the specifics of the rituals and the way in which you're manipulating others um, is, you know, going to be culture specific. So, um, so back to Dominica, I right. feel like somebody's put a curse on me. Yes, because. People are looking at me funny, or I think someone's competing with me for something, or otherwise. Well, yeah, you might, um, someone's wife might be concerned that uh, their husband is finding you attractive. So they don't want you to steal their husband away. And so they might go see someone who could help them in that regard, mm. who's got special powers, okay. um, and could put a curse on you, so to speak. And uh, you might be feeling anxious. This could manifest itself in... Raised heart rate. Or yeah, you know, your, your, your health um, going downhill. Uh, in some cases, for example, if you were predisposed to, to diabetes, oh gosh, you know, you, you, you might be eating a little bit more because you're anxious and various other things that you're doing might compound the problems that you're having with diabetes. And the actual stress system itself can um, cause issues with different metabolic disorders. Mm -hmm. So you might find yourself, um, you know, with full blown diabetes and, and have to have a foot cut off. You know, there's clear evidence that the curse worked. <laughs> yeah, I mean, who could deny it? Yeah, so why are there practitioners? It, it sounds like a lot of this could be done just by, you know, people feeling that someone has, you know, bad intentions towards them or is, you know, doing something. Well, that's the start of it. But okay. then I think if the niche is there for a specialist, a, a powerful controller of this, you know, sort of supernatural world, then... Uh, People are going to come to them. They're going to give them money or mm -hmm. eggs or something. Do they actually have some special powers? I'm not saying necessarily supernatural powers, but some particular abilities to understand or manipulate the social world that they're kind of capitalizing on in terms of being a practitioner of witchcraft? Yeah, I mean, uh, in you don't have to be a, a practitioner um, to, to be a witch. So let me go off on yeah, a tangent yeah, there yeah, just yeah. a bit. So for example, um, the first uh, week or two that I was in the village, I was walking down a path to my research assistant who was postmistress. The, the mail would come in in a bag and she would distribute it to the villagers. And uh, they were all waiting in her yard for the mail to come. And I walked down the path and I think they were hoping that I was... Bringing the mail. Bringing the mail. <laughs> I walked under a mango tree in her yard and uh, heard a little sound above me and just instinctively stuck my hand out. And as luck would have it, a perfect mango fell right into my hand without any juggling or it just poofed right in my hand. 
And everyone was watching this event. Because everyone else was waiting for their mail. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they're just kind of in a little <laughs> yeah. amphitheater there. And, you know, mm-hmm. and they're all watching me because I'm the new guy. I'm Dr. Mark. And, mm-hmm. you know, some of them have met me. And, but anyway, a new person in the village. So natural curiosity. I handed the, the mango to a little four-year-old girl. who, And uh, the outcome of that, the gossip was that, wow, Dr. Mark is a very powerful witch. He can call the mango down out of the tree right to his hand. That's a that's a pretty good trick. Um, I don't think they'd seen that <laughs> one before. But you know, I was an outsider, and you know, maybe I have different witch, witching powers than what they're accustomed to. But I was a good witch, so um, I gave the mango to a little girl who would otherwise not be able to get such a wonderful treat for herself. I didn't keep the mango for myself. I didn't give it to an adult to curry favor with them. It was a free gift to someone who really couldn't do anything for me. So the interpretation of that was Mark is a very powerful witch, but he's a very good witch. Sounds like a good way to start your field site. Yeah. um, (laughs) One of those things that, yeah, serendipity worked out very well. In general, if you are successful, if you're wealthy, if you're powerful socially, um, you must have some, you know, witchy powers that enable you to, to have that kind of success. Hmm. So there's a sense that the su- supernatural world is important for everyone. We all influence it. So it's not just, a, you know, a Hogan practitioner who can control this or influence it but some individuals are more successful at it they have more knowledge they're just more effective witches Hmm. um and uh, being a witch is not necessarily a bad thing like you said no not at all we are all witches we are all witches we are all influencing one another um, and we're all zombifying each other yes. one way or another. <laughs> yes, we, yeah, we are all eating one another's brains <laughs> one way or another. That's what we're up to, and uh-huh. that's what our brains are there for. They're there to be eaten. <laughs> what do you mean by that? <laughs> well, I mean, that's, you know, we, we, we evolved these big brains to be social. I mean, it's not mm-hmm. like we're putting our brain on a platter for someone to come up and take. You know, we have all these defense mechanisms and... But yeah, hmm. you know, so being human is, is really a, a giant. About um, sharing our brains. Yeah, well, sharing is one way of putting it. <laughs> but yeah, we, we manipulate these, uh, you know, neurologically, you know, information going back and forth. Uh, and that plays into these existing physiological systems. So you can stress someone out. You know, we all went through junior high school or middle school. (laughs) And that's a period of intense acquisition of social networking, coalitionary skills. Right, and all these systems are coming online for doing this social stuff, right? And they need to get calibrated, but everyone's systems are all coming online at the same time, and they're spending eight hours a day with each other. (laughs) Yeah, and it's so tricky. You know, the, the coalitions, you know, by definition, you're giving something up, but you're getting something in return. And, uh, you know, I want you as a friend, but someone else wants you as a friend. So we're competing over friendships in order to uh, outcompete someone else. So, you know, if 
all the complexities and mm -hmm. you know it's such a multiplayer system and it's constantly shifting yeah junior uh, high is kind of like game of thrones right oh yeah <laughs> well i mean game of thrones and novels and movies the topics mm -hmm. why do we find them interesting they play out scenarios for us mm -hmm. and, you know that's that's yeah, yeah what's people going on with it manipulating other people right yeah so yeah there are interactions between um, the HPA system and our immune systems. So that link to health is multifaceted. And one of the areas in which it's influential is how your immune system responds because it's involved in regulating the immune system. So, you know, cortisol is, uh, it, it's a player with multiple skills inside our bodies. It's doing a bunch of different things. Um, so, so when you get stressed, your cortisol levels go up and then that has a lot of different effects, both on your brain and, and your body, including your immune system. Yeah. So, you know, we, we've got all these other components that are, are regulating that. So if you're running a marathon, um, you know, you want to be directing the resources primarily to your leg muscles to be running. Mm -hmm. Um, but it is borrowing from Peter to pay Paul there. So you're going to shut down or take resources away from other things that you're not needing right then. Mm -hmm. uh, and in the case of psychosocial stress, you're anxious, you're elevating your, your stress levels uh, in part to help you solve these mental problems. Um, and, you know, that's a, a, a bit of a conundrum um, because uh, stress hormones like cortisol can have complicated effects on how your brain works and we don't really have it all sorted out so it's not like it's a genius pill by any stretch um, in some ways it's diverting your ability to think about certain kinds of things hmm. in certain contexts but the complexities of that are sort of state-of-the-art stuff that we're mm -hmm. you know really just trying to sort out now mm -hmm. in part because we really haven't had the evolutionary logic behind addressing these kinds of questions. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it tended to be very mechanistic. And when you're just looking at a mechanism without thinking about what it's designed to do, you can go down a lot yeah. of dead ends before you start to, to yeah. figure out what it's really up to. So could you give us the sort of quick, you know, what is the sort of evolutionary way to, to look at the stress system? How does that differ from a a mechanistic one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, you know, nothing's perfect. So natural selection, as amazing as it is, you know, we wouldn't have eyes that could see <laughs> the way we do if natural selection hadn't refined it bit by bit. Um, our response to our social environments, um, I think we need to think about in an equivalent way as being an intricately designed system to help us succeed socially. Uh, it's not, you know, a, a mistake of the system being set up for something else. I mean, it's set up for a lot of things, but um, we, we need to be investigating much more intensely um, how, particularly longitudinally, um, how the, the stress response works uh, to help us modify um, the way we understand our social worlds mm -hmm. and help us 
um, figure out our own particular little social niche. Mm -hmm. With the ultimate goal of helping us to survive and reproduce and take care of our kids better and all those things that natural selection should be favoring. Right. But, you know, um, the way in which we do that is eating one another's brains. (laughs) All right. So you're saying we're evolved to be zombies. Um, Yeah. Or evolved to zombify others. And then as a byproduct, we become zombified. Yes, we're all zombifying (laughs) one another. (laughs) And so let's take this back to witchcraft and the idea of like being a good witch or a bad witch. Does that have to do with the sort of underlying alignment or misalignment of evolutionary interests of goals like you're a a good witch if you're using your you know social influence powers in a way that um is actually aligned with the interests of the person who you're zombifying and you're a bad witch i could be doing something wonderful for you and you would perceive me as a good witch but your enemy over here seeing that i'm doing something nice for you would perceive me as a bad witch Mm -hmm. so yeah it's all in terms of reproductive Mm -hmm. interests Mm -hmm bottom line there Mm -hmm. so it's sort of relative to the perceiver and their goals kind of if yes i mean there are you know in my example of the the mango giving it to a a five-year-old um you know i think that was kind of a universally perceived beneficent act Mm -hmm. so um in individuals you know we i do ask these things but in you know as uh, harmless a way as possible, um, you know, how they sort of perceive others in terms of their uh, doing nice things um, versus doing not so nice things. And, uh, you know, some people are more generally perceived as, as being kind, beneficent sorts, and others, um, you know, maybe not so much, more selfish. Mm-hmm. But it's all, you know, more fine-tuned, too. So, um, and I do, when we started out using um, what are called psychological instruments, questionnaires about things like temperament and personality, um, you know, I had multiple people tell me uh, what they thought about a person. And it was striking to me how people had different perspectives on things. Mm -hmm. So someone might rate you very high in kindness and someone else might not. Mm -hmm. And so we have to be, Mm -hmm. yeah, aware of what the whole big social context is in terms of attributes like that. And by extension, attributes Mm -hmm. like witchiness. Yeah. So what is voodoo and how does it relate to witchcraft? Well, I mean, it's sort of a historical gig. So um, when you look at the the mix of things that came over from Africa with slavery and then the context of what was happening in the New World, um, you know, its own new system, but based on lots of other history. I mean, that's the way it always works. Okay. You know, you, you... Mm-hmm. build from the old you, you to, to make you know some new things but um mm-hmm. gosh i mean i'm not really the right person to maybe ask that there are all these experts yeah. on 
you know, the history of voodoo. Right, and, right. Um, but, but it's primarily in the Caribbean, and it's a result of sort of mix of different right. cultural ideas it's, about witchcraft. Yeah, it's and, the, the, yeah. that particular cultural variant of uh-huh. a manipulative system. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, you know, you can go around the world and, and look at, you know, in Latin America, why do you get nervios? Why do you get what? Ataque de nervios. What's that? Um, it's basically an anxiety attack. Uh. Um, but it can be, it's thought to be induced often by something that someone else does hmm. to you. So, you know, they might look at you the wrong way or, or something that then causes this. And so mechanistically, what what's going on there? Yeah, same kind of thing where someone is making you feel as if uh, there's something wrong in your social world and you're perseverating on that concern and it... You're like ruminating and yeah, it's just kind it, of getting... Uh, going in your brain and it just raises your stress. All right. And we're open mm-hmm. to that because of this system that is so flexible to, to figure out what's going on in the social world. So, um, right. We are, uh, open to that kind of, you know, we could call it, I suppose, a pathology. Yeah. Maybe it's not, maybe that really is something you should be worried about. Um, well, you know, but, it's it's a bit of a smoke detector yeah. um, that has spun off a, a, a bit much, but uh-huh. uh, you know, it all depends on the yeah. context. Well, so, I mean, it sounds like in general, it probably makes sense to have this system that can kind of you know get activated that there's some issue, something you should be attending to, something you should be trying to fix, but but maybe it, that can also get exploited if That's you exactly have right. individuals who are knowing how to kind of well yeah, we all know raise how to your do anxiety it. We, and... yeah we just do it in you know different ways to everyone at different times i mean any kind of social interaction has that dynamic going on hmm. Hmm. so when we're you know really close to people or when they have some you know power over our outcomes or they're competing with us over things that you know where we have sort of incompatible goals that we have some vulnerability to to that yeah trust is a really interesting phenomenon so you know you, you want to be able to open your brain up to those who have your best interests at heart so that they will know how to best help you mm-hmm. but of course that does as you put it open you up to exploitation mm-hmm. so things like falling in love um, you know a variety of shifts and changes in social relationships they are Boy, you know, very, hmm. but stressful. Yeah, but you're, <laughs> you're probably more vulnerable the more social your brain is, right? The more you think about other people's intentions, the more you model their mental states, the more you're influenced by seeing their emotions. So, so you've got the system that on one hand could be a great asset for enhancing your reproductive success, but it could also be really exploited if you're, you know, if somebody pushes your button, so to speak. Oh yeah. And the system can crash. I mean, you're building up this algorithm based on your experience and then something can happen that shatters the model. Hmm. Some, you know, your mother does something that is just like, Oh my hmm. gosh, you know, I not, I would not have predicted that. Hmm. And so you've got to break down the algorithms hmm. and rebuild them hmm. and stress enables that 
week. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so it's really key for the breakdown to rebuild. Hmm. The problem is if you break down and break down and break down and you don't have the landmarks and the support system you need to build a reasonable model of the social world, you're a mess. Because, Interesting. you know, stuff is, you can't predict what's happening hmm. because your model isn't good. Uh, a child in an unpredictable family environment, an alcoholic father who has erratic behavior, I mean, kind of, there's a predictability to the unpredictability there. But even still, yeah, um, you know, consistency, uh, devotion, commitment, trust, um, that allows you to to build a model, and it also allows you to explore in creative new ways because you've got that secure base. So you know, attachment theory and how that helps you manage your social world and your anxiety levels, um, yeah, all of that, I think, just fits very nicely into this. Yeah. Yeah, so I always ask in the show, what's your version of the zombie apocalypse that's like the apocalypse of you know in this case like witchcraft and you know humans manipulating other humans like what what does that look like if if we take this capacity we have to influence others and stress them and actually have a manifest with physical symptoms and we you know ramp it up like what does the world look like what's that world so i get to be science fiction yes author? yes yeah totally all oh, right yeah so um you know think about google and facebook and social media i mean and and uh artificial intelligence adaptive learning so what we were doing is equipping these uh new information processing systems with the algorithms that are needed to exploit us. So, you know, the, the tools that we now have to exploit one another um, are getting extremely powerful. Think about elections and politics, how you can influence millions of people. Um, yeah, so say a little bit more about the, the Google, the Facebook, like what, what are the mechanisms that are being tapped into there that have to do with the sort of social influence? Well, uh, like a human, but not as good at it, they are trying to mind read us to mm -hmm. figure out what it is that we want, what we might want to buy, mm -hmm. you know, and Maybe then stress they, us out in the right way. Uh, to sure, exactly. So, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. Um, there are now, uh, you know, the opportunities for giving, you know, the Silicon world more uh, ways to tap into our physiologies. So we're wearing an Apple Watch and it's measuring our pulse rate. Now, you know, it, it's... That's exactly the kind of information a witch needs to figure out how to manipulate that's you, right? right? <laughs> yep, exactly. And there are a whole bunch of other very cool remote sensing kinds of things that we're going to be able to do. You know, we can... We can look at faces and how, so we can have cameras on the streets and everywhere, and they're monitoring what our, our facial expressions are in real time with our monitors. So, you know, uh, I mean, this is the kind of data. The amount of big data that could be acquired yeah. about what's going on inside a human's head is, is just exploding. Right. And then figuring out the ways to influence and manipulate it, um, those. That's <laughs> all exploding. So, uh, yeah. It's... So if we play this out, like, kind of into the darkest and most apocalyptic 
version of us being zombified that we're not it's not just sort of the you know interpersonal humans manipulating each other but machines are actually sure. yeah we've lost the arms race and, so humans have engaged in an information processing arms race now for millions of years we have these gigantic brains four times three times bigger than that of our closest relatives within a very short evolutionary span so the selective pressures to add neurons, 100,000 or more neurons per generation is basically what it boils down to. And uh, so we've been engaged in this informational arms race to be able to outthink one another in the, in the social games. Hmm. Now we're using, we're developing very sophisticated new, new tools to be able to be successful in that realm. So on the one hand, initially, a, a relatively small number of people are going to have extraordinary power over influencing the minds of other humans. So, the yeah, we're really consolidating mm -hmm. power. This this power that humans have been wrapped up in, you know, for our evolutionary history. Why we have our big brains? You know, the most important thing that we've evolved to do. Mm -hmm. is now being concentrated by these new tools in you know increasingly few numbers of individuals and at some point so we're sort of outsourcing some of that information processing to the machines and it's a small group of individuals who have are, that yeah or are yeah. benefiting from that knowledge mm -hmm. so you know you, in in the simple way now you could say that you know it's the the owners or the stockholders of companies like Google mm -hmm. or Facebook or mm -hmm. um, that are, you know, uh, benefiting. Mm -hmm. <coughs> but um, yeah, I, it's uh, I think a short run then for the 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 machines to have won this arms race over the biotic. Hmm. Um, because there are constraints on the biotic, as astonishing as our human brains are, as delicious <laughs> as they might be to consume, um, you know, the silicon world is going to take off because the constraints are hmm. less there. Hmm. Of course, they'll be engaged in a similar arms race to keep pushing it to, mm -hmm. you know, more and more. Um, hmm. So when we're, you know, interacting with our electronic devices and they're like you know helping us navigate helping us you know stay in contact with our friends helping us easily purchase the next thing we want to pur purchase on our amazon app i mean they are helping us accomplish our goals right so it's not well, at least right tools. now it's not a totally yeah. um exploitative yeah. right it's a sort of you know i mean we're giving it our attention and and bandwidth and you know letting it sell us stuff and in return, we get a bunch of services, but we also end up, what, on average, spending three or four hours a day engaged with our phones, which we might not be actually setting out intending to do. Yeah, and then, you know, pulling back a bit, uh, you know, there are some very interesting medical uses for monitoring devices. So mm -hmm. for a physician to be able to monitor your physiology and what's going on, you know, it can predict a stroke or a heart attack or... Um, yeah, diabetic shock, etc. So there's a whole bunch of wonderful things that might come out of it. But those are also systems that would provide invaluable data 
to the exploiters. Mm. So moving forward, how do we, I mean, are there things that we can do with this knowledge about how we can be sort of zombified, have our stress systems activated and be manipulated that way? Like, are there ways that we can take that knowledge to hopefully have a less apocalyptic future when it comes to being, you know, manipulated by other humans or by, you know, uh, by machines that are the sort of extension of uh, other human brains? No. No. No, it's an, it, no, but we need to end the, on a positive note. The apocalypse is inevitable. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, there's got to be something. Yeah. Well, it, it'll. Yeah, it's a, it certainly is uh, like a cultural change and evolution is going into hyperspeed. Hmm. So. So our. So we've got. I mean, presumably, you know, humans, right? We've evolved to be able to influence others to be able to zombify others, but we've also been evolving to not be influenced by, right, so some anti-zombification systems, but those kind of, you're saying those can't necessarily keep up with the speed of... It's an arms race, mm -hmm. you know, it was like the arms race to develop a nuclear weapon. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, say what you will, but, you know, there was mutually assured destruction when you had equality mm-hmm. of ability to mm-hmm. annihilate one another and, and that was served mm-hmm. as a great restraint whether or not there's going to be an equivalent mutually assured destruction in the informational arms races that are now going on um, is uncertain mm-hmm. i would say knowledge of these things is less and less public more and more behind doors mm-hmm. that most mm-hmm. of us will we'll never have access to. Mm-hmm. So the egalitarian distribution of knowledge about what's going on, the directions that are happening, um, I would say that's a, that's a big, mm-hmm. that's maybe a core issue of mm-hmm. this generation to resolve. So having more transparency about how these systems are working and yes. what the algorithms are doing that right. underlie them. Yeah and, yeah, and somehow figuring out a way to um, damp down the winner takes all mm-hmm. aspect of that informational arms race. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. If we can have that kind of restraint and foresight, which is asking a lot. I mean, mm-hmm. it's like going against our nature mm-hmm. that it's designed to win those arms races right. to say, okay, you know, we're, we're, it's going to be better for us all if we just kind of mm-hmm. damp that whole thing down and keep it. Right. More or less evenly distributed. Yeah. Well, but how about on a sort of individual level? Like, you know, as a person trying to have a little bit more control over your own happiness and your own success in your day-to-day life, you know, given the fact that we are zombifiable by other people and by algorithms that are in place to yeah, that's a manipulate great question. us. Uh, you know, I mean, there's a whole industry out there of sort of self-help and biofeedback, but, you know, we are learning more and more about these systems and how to keep track of them. So I would like to think that, you know, being able to wear a physiology monitor. So, you know, our, our brains have evolved to obviously keep track of what's going on with the physiology being influenced mm-hmm. by it. But um, given that we are now in novel environments that these systems didn't really evolve to, to contend with, 
um, there might be advantages to being more aware of our physiologies and how um, the influence of others on mm. our physiology um, affects us, mm. that we could, mm. you know, more consciously mm. uh, work at that. So if you know, oh, every time I hang out with this friend, my heart rate goes way up and... and or are you talking about something different? Yeah, no, that, yeah. You know, it would be that sort of thing, probably, uh -huh. you know, more and more sophisticated. Because uh -huh. Or when I go on this app, my heart rate's all over the place. <laughs> maybe I should delete it. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe you shouldn't. <laughs> it's a, a fun heart rate. So, uh -huh. yeah, yeah, it's stress. So, uh -huh. um, but just kind of becoming more aware of how you're responding to the things in your world, whether it's social others yeah, or just, interacting with the technological world. Yeah, at this point, it is just really still such an, an unknown. So, you know, things like cortisol. Uh, boy, I mean, there's so many things about it that we don't understand in terms of how it influences various aspects of us. And I, I wouldn't want your listeners to... to walk away with the uh, impression that stress is bad for them. I think um, it should be viewed as one of our tools for uh, adjusting, for managing things that are going on. And uh, when it's working right, um, and, you know, our environments are, you know, good environments, positive environments for us, you know, our stress systems are, are, activated and um, providing resources for things that we love to do. So, um, you know, my cortisol levels go up when I go windsurfing or I play volleyball. Cortisol levels go up during sex. So, you know, why would you then right. somehow think that, oh, cortisol is bad for you? Uh -huh. um, you know, you got to think about the evolutionary design of these systems and, uh -huh. and learn. Hmm. And so stress is kind of helping your body allocate resources in a way that is ideally helping you to accomplish your goals. Yes. But um, sometimes that system can kind of get manipulated or influenced or otherwise dysregulated, and, sure. and that's when it's a bad thing for us. Yeah, that and, um, I, you know, we, we don't want to be standing in the middle of the road when a semi-truck is about to run us over. Right. Um, so, you know, our cortisol is going to go up in that context. Um, yeah. might not help us fast enough, but <laughs> uh, if we survive, it would certainly uh, imprint that you don't want to be standing in the middle of the road with large, fast-moving objects coming at you. Right. Um, so... Uh, so stress isn't all bad. No, stress is not um, bad. And, and uh, the, the environment throws curveballs at us mm -hmm. and... So we need to figure out how to, you know, change and adjust to those curveballs. Stress is really what lets us make those quick shifts in our... Yeah, and it allows us to focus. If we're living in a place where um, it's possible that someone is going to walk out behind their car with a, a gun and start shooting at us, and we've experienced this before, and, and we've seen our little brother um, die as a consequence of this, um, it makes sense for our brain and our sensory systems to be way more tuned into that possibility and to be planning and thinking about, you mm -hmm. know, where this might happen in our walk home from school mm -hmm. than if yeah. we don't. Right. 
have, if we're lucky enough to have grown up in an environment where that wasn't an issue. Right. Yeah. You know, we're going to be focused on, on, on different sorts of things. Right, and right. Yeah, so stress is helping us... Manage. Manage. Yeah. Yeah. And Great. Well, Mark, thank you so much for joining us. That's delightful. Pleasure having you. And if the whole world says that we're crazy... Department of Psychology and to ASU in general for supporting this podcast. I am super grateful for having the strategic initiative funds from the president's office for the interdisciplinary cooperation initiative, which helps to support this podcast, and also to the Lincoln Center for Applied Ethics, which is a totally awesome center that I am really, really happy to be a part of, and uh, they love zombies. So it's perfect. Also want to thank the Actipus Lab, otherwise known as the Cooperation and Conflict Lab, for all of their help in envisioning and uh, contributing to this podcast in more ways than I could possibly imagine, and to the Zombie Apocalypse Medicine Alliance. If you want to follow us, we're on Twitter and Instagram at Pod. On Patreon, we're just Zombified, and our website is zombified.org. Thank you to Tal Rom, who does our awesome sound, Neil Smith for all the illustrations for the podcast, and in general, just thank you to all of the brains that help make this podcast happen. And finally, to everyone who has shared their brains with me, this podcast is not just a result of my brain and Dave's brain and the brain of our guests, but it is brains and brains going back into the history of humans that have basically influenced this podcast in one way or another, um, because we all affect each other's brains. So actually, on that point, the thing that I wanted to offer today, the part of my brains that I want to share with you has to do with this issue, this idea that humans share brains. This came up in the interview with Mark Flynn, and I just really love this idea that Mark brings up, that part of what being human is is actually that we need each other's brains 
to solve problems, to get information, and to take care of ourselves and take care of those we love. So well, we talked about this a lot, um, and Mark and I kept talking about this even after we finished recording the podcast. And I'm starting to think that maybe part of what makes humans unique is not necessarily our brains themselves, but the fact that we share them and the way that we share them with others, the extent to which we kind of use other people's brains and outsource our cognition to them. And, uh, you know, basically we're operating in this giant network of, of brains that we share and, and utilize. And I think this is cool for a couple of reasons. One is just, you know, it's, it's brains and that's one of the most important topics of the podcast, but I think it actually has a lot to um, potentially contribute to how we think about what we're doing in science. You know, and that science is not just about, you know, sort of isolated brains trying to figure out problems, but is actually about, you know, bringing our brains together, bring all this information that we have in this distributed network of all of our brains and figuring out how to communicate about it and um, be able to move forward at the intersection of disciplines that are really complex. And I think this is a really interesting and important problem, you know, the sort of meta problem in science of how do we uh, share our brains more effectively. And there's another aspect of this that I think is, is pretty interesting, which is I wonder about what this means for how we're interacting with technology. So you know, if it is the case that we are evolved to kind of outsource a bunch of our brains to others and, you know, utilize other people's brains too, um, then does that actually make it easier for us to use technology in the way that we do, where we kind of outsource some of our brains to digital computation? Like, you know, you Google something or you ask Siri or or whatever, like, are we actually in a way kind of pre-adapted to outsource that um, to other brains, whether they are, you know, actually made of um, organic material or if they're made of silicon? Yeah, so are we basically pre-adapted to use our iPhones as an extension of our brains because of this? Interesting question. I don't know the answer. Uh, I also don't know the answer of, you know, to how we're going to bring all of our brains together to do science better. But I think that it is a really important problem and something that we should all be thinking about and trying to move forward into a new era of science where communicating is one of our priorities. Thank you for listening to Zombified, your source for fresh brains. But it seems so logical. I can't deny that there is something supernatural with you. Makes me act the way.